Welcome to Storytelling for Impact, the podcast about people who tell stories that change the world. I'm Susanna Birkwood, an international journalist turned NGO communications professional with over a decade's experience working for some of the world's best-known media and not-for-profit organizations. In today's episode, we meet journalist and author Sarika Bunsell. Based in Nairobi, Sarika was the founder and editor-in-chief of Bright Magazine, a fascinating, independent-minded online magazine which did a great job at constructively critiquing the international development sector and its practices. One of the topics she wrote about a lot for Bright was that of language and how the language we use shapes the stories we construct of faraway people and places. So I was so pleased when she said yes to my invitation to come on the show to talk through the kind of languages she finds problematic in the NGO sector. The other thing we talk about a lot in this episode is the subject of ethical travel, and particularly the ethical dilemmas which relate to volunteerism. What this episode tries hard not to be is a sanctimonious prescription for how you should use language and how you should travel. Instead, it's just hopefully a useful conversation which reflects deeply on some of these issues while at the same time acknowledging that none of us is perfect, that good intentions do count for something, and that it's always easier to sit back and criticise than it is to get our language and our travel habits right every time. I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll see you at the end. Sarika, hi! Hi, how are you? It's an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast. I was such a fan of Bright Magazine and trying to do something a little bit similar with Storytelling for Impact. But I'd love to hear what you've been up to since Bright Magazine ended, because that was in 2019, wasn't it? Yeah, so since Bright ended um, is when I started working on um, on this book, which uh, was just released called Tread Brightly Notes on Ethical Travel. Can you tell listeners a little bit about it? So, yeah, Tread Brightly is a book of 17 essays. Um, it originally started with Bright Magazine as a, as a crowdfunding project. And, and, uh, and you know, I just had this nugget of this idea that came to me so quickly, I think, because it's something that I've sat with for so long, which is, you know, when you travel the world, when you visit a new place, how are you showing up? And I think it's just a question that I've I've had in my head for, you know, since I was like 19 years old or so. And I really started thinking about myself at that age and how much I would have loved to have something to reflect those questions back to me and not tell me what to do, but just at least offer some ideas um, gently, because I think that people don't like to be told what to, what to do. <laughs> I don't think it works very well. And it's just kind of grown and grown since then. And now, uh, you know, so we've worked with people from around the world to to just yeah tell really vibrant stories. A lot of what's in those essays really resonated with me, particularly what you write about volunteerism. I think like many people working in development and in the NGO sector or in, you know, the social impact space in general, what inspired me very early on in my career was experiences volunteering in countries very far away and it was only I guess a couple of years in that I started to question uh, the model of you know what I was engaging in what I was experiencing paying uh, companies large amounts of money in order to facilitate volunteering trips where the communities didn't benefit at all 
on numerous occasions I worked in orphanages and and this wasn't always paying money to other organizations but I did start to become aware over time because there's been more awareness raising in recent years of the possible harms that you can do to children who already have like abandonment issues by just kind of flying in and spending a few weeks with them and yes showing them some love but then doing what perhaps everyone else they've already known in their life so far has done and walking out that door and flying home you've written an article about volunteerism in particular which was published in the new humanitarian this and one of the questions that you ask and answer in that I wondered if you could answer for listeners again and that's is there an ethical way for a young privileged person as I was to spend time in a poorer community in another part of the world? How might they channel their good intentions to affect change in the world, but in a way that's genuinely useful and impactful and doesn't do harm? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's something that I think that even posing that question to people who are young and privileged and have that desire already does so much good because I think that so many people are just taught that, you know, oh, you have so much to offer the world. You come from a, you you know, you should go to some place that's less privileged and just, and just do things. And there's this, this assumption that because you come from a place that is more privileged, that you have some inherent capabilities to just show up, um, and a poor community and do things that are good for them. And, mm. um, and I think that that's just part of the culture, you know, that's just like, you see the, these like poor, sad children with their big eyes and, you know, flies in the eyes and whatnot. And you just have, we just have all of these images. And I think that there's just this, also this, this uh, knee jerk reaction to just reward the um the good intentions of those young people who want to go um which you know and i don't and i think that it's a tricky line because um i want to recognize and acknowledge that those are good intentions i'm really and those things those good intentions can lead to really wonderful places they can you know lead to people making like career and life decisions that are that will just you know set them on certain paths for decades and i don't want to uh don't want to just tell people like, no, stay in your bubble and don't leave ever because you're just going to make a big mess of everything. Um, because that doesn't help anything either. And no, absolutely. yeah. And then uh, what I wrote in the, in the essay in the new humanitarian is that the other, uh, the other thing that comes often from internet strangers otherwise is just mockery and just, you know, just these like memes of just like, Oh, look at these, like, you know, these like clueless idiots who are just going into places and doing nothing. Um, but yeah. And I think instead of that, like, you know, just how can we offer genuinely helpful suggestions to people? Um, I think so much of it, honestly, comes down to mindset. Um, and it is that mindset first of, of you know, I think right now a lot of people go in and they have a mindset of I'm here to save um, you know, the world. And that's what I'm coming to do. I think that I had that mindset a bit when I was 19 years old, that, um, that I thought that I could just go places and um, and help and be really, you know, just, just help people and, and be just like a force of good. And, you know, they will, they will feel my impact after my two weeks and, um, in their community. And of course that's just not going to happen. So I think just scaling down those like notions of grandeur is already Mm -hmm. such a, such a big step. 
and understanding that, you know, maybe for you, a two week trip is a really big thing because maybe you haven't traveled before. And, um, and this is your first big trip out of, you know, out of, out of your home community. But for people who you're going to, you know, two weeks is just a blink in the eye and, um, and it's not going to, it's not going to make that much of a difference, no matter how much great work you do. And I think that just, you know, helping people just realize that is, um, is, is really just, you know, one really big step in, in, in the first place. And also that the issues that, that people are talking about dealing with a lot of times it is working with children and, you know, the child welfare is like, you know, there's entire departments um, of governments that are dedicated to that or housing and, you know, helping build, a, build someone a house. And it's like, okay, you're not going to solve homelessness in two weeks in Costa Rica. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, I think that just, uh, just helping people just kind of like, you know, realize that, okay, you're going to go and be exposed to things. And, you know, you can be, a, you can soak in and you can be a sponge when you go uh, and, you know, just be a good person and just actually just sit with people as real human, as real human beings. Imagine like the difference that, the, that, that there would be in the world if that were the case, if everyone had that mindset. Um, a couple of other things I think more concretely is I think people can understand too that, especially with COVID, um, and we've all been forced to find newness closer to home, um, maybe when we didn't want to, um, is to realize that a lot of these issues that we see in really faraway places, that most of those issues are issues that closer to home too, and that you know, we maybe just didn't expose ourselves to them or we just shielded ourselves in a way. And um, and at least closer to home, you have a little bit more context of um, of what you're doing. You know, you speak the language and you understand the culture. And um, and if you really do want to make a difference, that maybe you get a little bit further um, faster in your journey. Um, and then the other thing is, I think that you just actually decide that, you know, I want to learn about this topic and make it a career and um and maybe you just start studying and really try to uh try to become an expert in a way um so that in a few years time you can just make even a bigger impact if you go somewhere so yeah those, those are just a few suggestions yeah no I love that I love the kind of empathetic approach you take to this topic and you can really tell that you're someone that has gone through your own philosophical journey if you like and changed your mindset over time. I have to say it leaves me cold when people do take a really harsh attitude to to people that um, volunteer overseas and, you know, can't see those good intentions and fail to appreciate, you know, like you said, it does inform a lot of careers. I really don't think that I would have ended up in the social impact space if it wasn't for those early experiences at such a kind of formative time in my life. Um, I spent a year in Dominican Republic and Chile when I was 19 years old. I'm a believer in effective altruism, focusing your energies and your resources on the areas that can make the most impact. And this movement would probably say that flying in and flying out of a country is really not impactful and that you could contribute so much more just by donating or staying at home and, and doing online research, that kind of thing, which is absolutely probably true. But in terms of the motivation that you may need in order to continue, a, you know, a lifelong pursuit um, towards making the world a better place um, and getting the fulfillment that you need in order to sustain that, 
I think that's impossible without having that on the ground experience. I mean, whether you continue to do unlimited volunteering experiences, once you know what some of the problems are, perhaps that's different. Um, But I do think that, you know, I have a friend whose young daughter was um, thinking about not going on a volunteering trip that was offered to her recently um, to Eswatini uh, in Africa um, because of the ethical challenges around volunteerism. And it made me feel really sad that she wouldn't go at all and therefore wouldn't have those experiences which could shape her future worldview. Yeah, I mean, I do think there are a few absolutes that I would say that, you know, if maybe don't do this, which one of them is really uh, working with orphans because 80% of orphans have at least one living caretaker and it really mm-hmm. is an industry that is genuinely harmful for children and it's propped up in order to... Um, to make tourists feel good about themselves. And I I don't think that there is an ethical, I I really just after just doing a bunch of research for the chapter and, um, and some other projects, I've just, I really have come to the, come to the belief that I don't think there is an ethical way to, um, to volunteer with, with quote unquote orphans. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there are some things that, that like I would draw a line on, but, but yeah, like with, with that example with Eswatini, it's like, I feel like often a lot of the criticisms, who do they really affect? You know, I think they end up affecting the people who, if if she were to go on the trip, would probably be one of the most sensitive people there. Um, and, you know, really just very culturally aware and um, and try to do her best to, um, to just, you know, to really understand all those, all those nuances. And those are the people who end up deciding to opt out and the people who decide to still go are the ones who are really brazen and, um, Mm. and, and want to, you know, save the world and have those, those notions. Like there's always the, these programs are going to exist. I mean, hopefully over time there'll be some demand that will drop. Um, But I, I fear that the people who decide not to do it are the ones who actually would be the most sensitive people. Um, And, you know, and I think that, instead like how do we how can we reimagine the industry so that the people who actually are most most sensitive are the ones who want to go forward and go and the people who aren't um who don't have that inclination to um to be self-aware and think about their own impact that they're going to have on the place that they would maybe be they would maybe be the ones to shy away Mm. right well I think that this topic is in itself enough for a whole podcast series But the subject of today's podcast is actually language and how to use language to tell stories that empower the contributors and the communities that we're writing about, how to uphold their dignity and yet still be clear and intelligible. And this podcast isn't the only entity to be thinking about this topic a lot in recent weeks and months. There's this group called Dignified Storytelling who recently ran a consultation to produce guidelines on the subject. While Bond, which is the membership body for international development organisations in the UK, recently produced a publication which is all about taking British politics, jargon and colonialism out of the language that they use as an organisation. And I know, Sarika, this is a subject you've written a lot, um, particularly when you were at Bright Magazine and, and thought a lot about. Um, and I'm curious to get your take on why is it that the language we use matters? 
honestly, I think that the idea for language is not dissimilar from the conversation we were just having about voluntourism. Um, I think that the, um, in voluntourism, you know, you just, you have people with much more power and privilege coming into another community and affecting change and then going back. And I think that so much of NGO language when it comes to international development, um, even the word development itself, um, kind of carries a lot of those same notions of who is the insider, who is the outsider, who is the person who has the power and privilege um, and who doesn't, who is sitting in the seat of power and who is just, you know, in the community where decisions aren't being made. And I think that um, so much language just, you know, just says those, just reinforces a lot of those stereotypes. And um, and I think that it's such an opportunity to upend that and really also upend, who, you know, those those kinds of traditional notions of who is the decision maker in certain situations. In addition to often displaying this power imbalance, um, jargon is often very abstracted language. Um, you don't know exactly what someone is saying when they're talking about, you know, liaising with key local stakeholders that are doing capacity building for, um, you know, to solve the SDG dilemmas of this. And, you know, you can just, you know, you really can just create full sentences um, or like full paragraphs filled with them. I think it's fair to say that the international development and international NGO sector loves this kind of job. Yeah, there's a lot of very serious consequences that I've seen personally to a lot of people who have great ideas, but aren't able to communicate them effectively using very concrete language to tell people what they do. I think it's a vicious cycle in this sector that kind of perpetuates itself. A lot of people use jargon as a shield to hide behind because I think sometimes they're unclear about how to um, how, how to express a certain concept and describe it clearly. Uh, but there's also, I think, cases where people are trying desperately to sound as intelligent as the person next to them who's also using lots of jargon and they're worried that if they just use plain English people aren't going to perceive them as highly yeah so I've done some training around jargon and I I think that there's um it does it definitely does mask some insecurities uh I think in some cases it seems like it's a cultural thing um from what I've learned that uh Several people who are from West Africa mm. told me that if you show up on stage and speak in a way that people understand you, they'll just think that, oh, what, you've gone abroad and come back and you just speak in a way that we understand you, um, which is a little bit backwards because, you know, when you speak to an audience, they should understand what you're saying. Um, so, you know, I, I understand like sometimes when people use it when for for those purposes, but it I think it really is is there to um, to just impress but not to communicate in a way that's effective. Mm-hmm. What about, and perhaps this is more concerning, language which dehumanizes people or fails to uphold their dignity? When we think of language, it's not just words that we use, but it's also images. Um, so one, one example of an image that I feel like I've seen a lot and I don't think is helpful is um, is in... Well, in SRHR, in the SRHR world, in the sexual reproductive rights and health world, um, you often see pregnant bellies without a head. 
And it just, I think, conveys this idea to me um, of the woman as vessel. And it's like her actual, you know, the, the, the person who is carrying the child is not important. Um, what's important is the act of being pregnant and, um, and bringing new life into this world. And I think that mm. often ends up creating policies that are not as friendly towards the mother, but more for the, for the baby. And, and again, I feel like that's, that's very subliminal. Um, so, yeah. so yes, yeah, so I think also a, um, a complication in that particular space um, which I used to work in is that so many of the cases you might want to tell stories about are victims or survivors of sexual abuse and sexual violence. And so there's often these complications around revealing their identity for safeguarding reasons. I would imagine why that a lot of um, portrayals um, cut off their heads, but that is, that is pretty unfortunate. I would agree. It doesn't yeah. exactly convey much dignity. Yeah. I think that there's a way to still do it. I've seen, I've seen people, you know, you can take photos from behind, um, that would just still obscure their, um, their identity. There's, there's other ways to do it. Um, yeah. and I, I, yeah, but I think that you often see it without that intention. It's just like, I've seen like a line of pregnant bellies like you know in saris so it was just like you know for you know which uh, uh, you know in, in india and it's just you know showing these like colorful ladies and um but without showing their their faces and i don't know it just it feels like it's their faces weren't important sure that also reminds me of uh the quite common cases <laughs> i've come across of just a person's face blurred out and their body shown as another attempt at kind of meeting safeguarding policies but it really doesn't work from a dignity perspective no I just I feel like you know I've um I've done some like education reporting before and we've had to be really creative with um how you show children for those reasons and um there's ways that you can photograph classrooms I mean people who have experience have done it in in ways that still don't show any of the children's faces because that you you know you really don't want to do without permission um, but that still are not, you know, you can still show just like a couple of fingers on a, um, on a, on a sheet of paper. Like there's, there's just like a lot of ways that you can still convey the idea of classroom, convey the idea of learning, um, and not just, you know, obscure the dignity of someone. Uh, I think the other, the other example, which now this gets back to more like language is that the idea of like people first language and, um, a lot of people avoiding people first language and instead just talking about like, oh, the the homeless or the convict and, you know, just d defining a person uh, not by, yeah, well, like really just defining a person by their, by temporary state. So, and which often is like a, a, a state that may not represent their, um, you know, who they, a proud moment in their life. I think that like, yeah, like an inmate and illegal, you know, just like those types of words that um that you know may be accurate for a short amount of time but um but don't necessarily define someone as like a three-dimensional human being mm. what would be your preferred term for referring to the people who are the recipients of aid would you prefer to talk of the global south yeah or developing countries or dare i say it the third world <laughs> yeah that is a really tough one it's like it's one of those things, it's always so much more 
it's always so much easier to criticize than it is to say that this is the perfect thing to do. <laughs> so, I mean, there's ways that you could say all of those are bad. Um, the, the third world, I, I think is very interesting. I don't know if you know the history of the term, um, but so the, it was created during the Cold War and the first, the first world were like the U.S. and Western Europe and all the allies. The second world was related to, at that time, the Soviet Union and, um, and everyone who was along with them. And the third world was everyone who wasn't aligned with either side. And uh, so in the most strict definition, Switzerland is a third world country because they have always been a neutral party. <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, and that's why just you know, most of Africa wasn't aligned either, with either side so that therefore they became the third world. And, um, and over time, it's obviously come to mean something else. But I always... Um, laugh and I'm like, oh yeah, so you mean Switzerland when you're talking about visiting the <laughs> third world? Um, the the and then I would also, you know, have the criticism for a developing country in that, you know, there's so many parts of the so-called industrialized developed world that are still very much developing. I mean, if you look at in the U.S., like Flint, Michigan, still not having clean water, or like so many roads in the U.S. being in a state of utter disrepair. Um, it's just so hard to say, you know, it, it really just doesn't bring to light the nuance of, you know, of inequality within countries. Um, and then in Kenya, where I live, you know, it, there's certain parts of Nairobi that are just so wealthy. And, um, and, and there's, there's, you know, a lot of money in the country. And, uh, and it kind of obscures that as well. And I think that it's not helpful in that way. Um and Global South is also, I think, kind of does the same thing of just, it kind of divides the world into like the haves and have nots. Um, so I don't know, like, I, I feel like there's part of me that's just like, why do we need to have an overall term to describe what like Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Latin America, like, why does there need to be one catch-all term for all of these different places that are all so different from each other? And um, and why not just say the name of the place where you're going to um, talk about, you know, oh, when I was last week, when I was in Angola or when I was in Chile or when I was in South Korea, like, I mean, obviously South Korea, I wouldn't even consider like, quote unquote, the developing world. But um, but, you know, all of these places have very different histories and they're just uh, they have very different challenges. And why are we? What's, who is it helping to group all of them together? Um, I often think of this all, alongside um, calling, saying people of color and just thinking about how mm. my experience in life as someone who is, um, you know, who is Indian by origin is just so different from someone who um, came from Guatemala, from someone who um, is, is black and, and just like grouping us as people of color, like, I don't know who's that, who is that helping actually? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously we don't always have the luxury of being so specific and referring to a particular country. I'm working on a press release at the moment, which is talking about quote unquote, marginalized communities in different parts of the world and and obviously I need it I need to be using terms yeah. which are some kind of catch-all so if forced to choose <laughs> which of those three would you use 
well, with uh, with Bright Magazine, we did end up using Global South. Um, I think the problem with Global South, though, is also that language is a two way street. You know, so it's like I um, I want to say something that other people understand, and mm. you know, when I say Global South to my parents. They're just like, what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, be it becomes its own jargon in a way, or it becomes a way to signal totally. who's in the in-group, who understands the enlightened term versus who's not. Um, but that probably would be the term that I feel like has come to be more popular among a certain type of person right now, um, for better or worse. And and that's the one we're probably going to go with, to be honest. Although I would agree if you feel that developing country is a little bit more intelligible and accessible. Yeah, it, it definitely mm. is. Although I think that I just have, I, I just, as I said, I think it just really obscures what is developing and what's not. Yeah, yeah. And what's your take on the word empowerment, which we see bandied around all the time in the international development space in particular? So with empowerment, it does have a definition to it. And, um, and you know, I think that when I think of like the origins of like when it started to become popular, it was really with, you know, a lot of feminist movements talking about empowerment in a really, in a, in a very real kind of way. And, um, and, you know, just refer to like a whole set of policies and just a whole way of being um, and yeah, I think it's just become very watered down over the years. Um, and uh, my favorite story with empowerment is that I saw a picture and I wish I had taken a screen grab of it. This was years ago of um, a group of women in India who definitely, you know, were in a village, definitely did not speak English. And um, and were just holding up a sign that, you know, I attended that they attended some like two hour workshop from an, an NGO. And this group of women are just like, holding up a sign saying like, I am now empowered. And I'm like, really after a two hour workshop, like I think the origins of the, of that idea of empowerment was like thinking about um, financial, political, um, all sorts of ways that people, that, that women in particular were able to, um, to come of their own and really just be their own person. And now all of a sudden it's being watered down to, you know, you attend a, a two hour workshop on how to open a bank account and um, and there, thus you are empowered. Um, so I just wish that you know we were just a little bit more careful with it and and realize the the really immense origins of the word and um, and what and all of the dimensions that it means. Mm. Um, and a lot of people in um, NGO storytelling refer to the stories that we tell as giving voice to the voiceless mm. a tip I came across the other day was to give women a voice in your communications which kind of made me raise a bit of an eyebrow what do you think about those kind of phrases well who's giving I think that this actually is relates really well to the whole volunteerism conversation it's just like um this notion of you have a voice you, you have the ability to give someone else a voice where they previously didn't. Um, and I, I think that it just, it just lends this idea of who is the giver and who is the taker and um, who holds the power. Um, it's almost, yeah. And, and who, who doesn't. Um, I, when I think of voiceless, I really think of, of Disney's little mermaid and, um, and Ariel having her voice taken away. <laughs> 
And, um, and, you know, you have the power to give her back her voice, you know, and it becomes this very, I don't know. Um, it, it just feels a little bit like um, saviorism in a, in a way. And, and I think especially with the rise of social media, like, you know, you see in, in Kenya where I live, you know, just um, how Kenyans have like really taken to Twitter and have been able to um, show, have been able to show the rest of the world that, you know, they don't need other people to come in and give them a voice. Like they're able to say a lot for themselves and affect quite a lot of change. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this one for me is one that sometimes I feel like we're being a little bit pedantic about because it's definitely one of those which is well-intentioned. Nevertheless, I try and use the phrase amplify their voices just so that we're moving away from the the connotations that you described. And a lot of people are moving away from the term beneficiaries as well. It seems to slowly but surely be becoming taboo mm-hmm. in the NGO space. What do you think about beneficiaries? Uh, so beneficiaries, I think, also does a bit of the same as the voice of the voiceless, which is that it implies that the person who is doing is the one who's more important. Because when you hear the word beneficiaries, it means that that person is benefiting. And it also implies that that person wasn't, isn't doing anything in the process, that they are just the ones who are receiving and you know it's like when you're receiving a gift you're supposed to just be grateful regardless of whether you wanted the gift or whether the gift is helpful and um and it just kind of takes away the agency from that person to um to take part in their destiny and um and maybe they didn't need that well in their community and um, maybe they don't want that orphanage there because you know the idea of there being orphans is uh you know they 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 are they are a bit of a fiction to prop up a volunteerism industry. And, um, and all of a sudden you're just supposed to be a beneficiary and just sort of like sit down, shut up, take your gift and, um, mm. and understand that this person is giving it to you with the kindest intentions. And therefore you don't need to have a voice in the matter. Mm. When the reality is a lot more complex. Yeah. I just feel like it, I would prefer that, you know, people are just who are part of a community are um are taking shape are are taking um part in their in their destiny and in um and in what comes to them Mm -hmm. Um, and what would your tips be for ngo storytellers who are wanting to be more ethical in their approach to the language that they use I think that the biggest tip overall um, is to just just think about who has power and agency and um, and you are you using language that amplifies as to use your word um, the power and agency of the people who your work is supposedly being done in service to or is it taking away that power Um, Mm. I think that so much of the NGO jargon that we see um, purposely exists, um, whether it's con- consciously or not, to to tell people who holds power and who doesn't, and um, who should just be the one-dimensional flat beneficiary and who is the well-intentioned doer. Um, and are there ways that you can subvert that? 
whenever whenever you can and uh and also just like just how can you make sure that when you are speaking about people that you are just humanizing them at all times so yeah so as i've mentioned i've taught courses in jargon and in um in the language that we use uh as development professionals and uh, and one of the things that i realized is that you know language is of course a two-way street you know there is the person who is speaking and then there is the audience that you're speaking to and uh and you want to ideally be understood by the audience that you're speaking to um so i started thinking about language as uh as user-centered design which i know is another piece of jargon but um if you mm-hmm. haven't heard the term before i'll define it um so user-centered design refers to it's often using like product design settings where you really think about the person who you're designing the um you know if you're making a new piece of technology the the person that you're designing it for and you really just understand how their lives work and how whatever you're designing will fit into their lives so you would think about like well uh what do they value how do they spend their days what do they eat for breakfast what music do they what music do they listen to um you know what how do they play with their children and you just like take all of these these elements of their life into consideration for how you design your product um and i think that there's so much of a uh, language that can be thought of in that same way because when you're speaking you want to be understood and you want to fit into someone's life and um and you want to make sure that you're bringing other people along with you in in the journey um and again coming back to the idea of the beneficiary and the idea of just you know i do the hard work and you are going to just flatly benefit from it um mm. i think that there's so much of user centered that user centered design thinking that can just subvert that and you can think about um how do i how do i speak in a way that just opens up a conversation instead and really allows the community that i'm supposedly benefiting to uh to actually participate and not just uh not just receive but also feel like they have co-ownership of whatever this project that we're doing um so yeah i i think that there's just it's just like such a nice to me such a nice like um different mindset to have when you start a conversation when you're writing an article when you're or when you're just you know actually in person with people. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting and I do think we would rid ourselves of a lot of these dilemmas that we've been discussing today if we got out the way a bit more often and allowed quote unquote contributors and community members to tell their own stories more often and choose their own way of expressing where they come from and who they are. Yeah. I'm super curious to know what's next for you. What's next for me? So I think that the the book is just really just starting its journey. I'm so excited to see where it goes. I would love to see it um you know being part of curriculum for students for you know you and me at 19 like our the next generation <laughs> um and and for a lot of NGO storytellers. Um that would be incredible. Yeah, okay. <laughs> So yeah, so I'm just excited to see where the the journey that the book will take. Yeah, and uh and you know, also the podcast again is like another thing that I'm just doing and it's just starting. Um yeah, so really just uh I feel like I um 
I'm just kind of like starting these, like, you know, up these journeys and, um, and yeah, I'm just sort of here for wherever the ride will take me. Amazing. Well, thank you for dropping by Storytelling for Impact on your journey today. It's very much appreciated and been super fascinating to talk to you. So thanks so much. Yeah, it's been so great to talk to you as well. Thanks for listening to Storytelling for Impact. What I took from my conversation with Sarika was that volunteering overseas offers a unique sense of perspective and human connection that few other experiences afford, and that it would be a real shame if socially conscious young people gave up entirely on trying to help out when they travel for fear of causing offence or of not being as effective as they might be. That said, it was clear that there's rarely ever a helpful way to volunteer at an overseas orphanage. As Sarika said, over 80% of children in orphanages are not actually orphans. While this wasn't news to me, our conversation did drive this message home and it made me pretty sad to reflect that my well-intentioned actions of the past may perversely have helped fuel an industry in which children who actually have living parents are used as tourist attractions. As for our chat about language, I think it's fair to say that there are a few unhelpful words still in everyday use in the NGO sector, from beneficiaries to capacity building, which is one of my own bugbears. There does seem to be a real willingness, though, to scrutinise the language we use and put the power in the hands of communities to describe themselves in their own words rather than through ours, which can only be a good thing. I'll be back next month with another interview with another inspiring storyteller. I'll see you then.